0: For those I don't know, my name is Matt Morton. I'm the teaching pastor over at our Creekside campus in South College Station. Uh, for the next few weeks, Blake and I have switched places. So he's over at Creekside, and he is giving the sermon series that he just gave for y'all over the last four weeks, and I'm over here. And we're going to begin a sermon series this morning on the topic of heaven and hell. As I have studied for this series and then preached this series over at Creekside, uh, my conviction has deepened that there probably is not a more critical topic that we could discuss as Christians than this topic of heaven and hell. Because ultimately, when we talk about heaven and when we talk about hell, we're talking about something that is at the very center of what we believe, and that is eternal life. One of the major questions of the New Testament is how can we have eternal life? How can we know that we will go to heaven or spend eternity with God one day and avoid separation from God in hell? It's at the center not only, in fact, of the Christian faith. It's at the center, I think, really of every belief system because everybody has to grapple on some level. Even if you're an atheist, you have to grapple on some level with this concept of eternal destiny. Okay, so not only is it critical, but also it is a subject on which there's a whole lot of confusion in our culture. doesn't take long watching TV or watching movies or reading books to recognize that there are a lot of different ideas about what heaven is like and what hell is like and who gets to go there. Uh, Several weeks ago, I was kind of scrolling through Netflix looking for something to watch and I ran across a show, relatively new show, that some of you have no doubt seen. It's called The Good Place. And uh, if you've seen The Good Place, you know that this is a show that explores the concepts of heaven and hell really by way of a sitcom. I'm not recommending the show to you. I know some of you have already watched it. If so, I forgive you, but I watched it for uh, sermon research. I wanted to see... How are they approaching this topic? And if you've not seen it, the the basic premise is this. There's a young woman. Her name is Eleanor. She dies. And when she wakes up, she finds herself face to face with a man named Michael, who is presumably an angel. And he says, congratulations. You have made it to the good place. Right? There's a good place And there's a bad place in the afterlife. You avoided the bad place. You made it to the good place. But here's the real dilemma that she faces. She's in the good place, but she knows there's been a mistake. Because she was a terrible person in her life. She was selfish. She was greedy. She was immoral. And she recognizes, I'm not supposed to be here in the good place. And that's how they kick off the show. And it's an interesting exploration, not only of who gets into heaven and hell, but what are they like? And as I watched it, I couldn't help but notice there were some themes and ideas about heaven and hell that emerge in the show that are very common in our culture. One of those is simply this, that the good people go to heaven and the bad people go to hell. If you have more good than bad on your scale of works, you will go to heaven, right? If you're basically good, you're going to end up there. If you're basically bad, you're going to end up in the bad place or in hell, right? The other thing that I noticed about it is their concept of heaven. The concept of heaven is it is a place where all of your sort of selfish and fleshly desires in life are really fully realized when you get to heaven, right? So if you liked to be important, if you liked to have power, if you liked to look good, if you liked latte, they will provide it for you in abundance, Right, And I'm not saying there's not latte necessarily in heaven. I know if I said that, I'd lose a lot of people. But I am saying that a lot of times our world constructs concepts about heaven and hell that are not necessarily biblical. So what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to dig into what does the scripture say about this critical topic of heaven and hell. And where we're going to start this morning is with this question, what happens when we die? right? Because what happens when we die, that's actually not the entire picture of heaven that we see in the Bible. In other words, the story of heaven and hell is a lot bigger than just what happens when we die. But we're starting with that question. And the reason we're starting with that question is because for most people, the first time you probably started asking questions about heaven and hell was when you encountered death, right? Somebody you knew died. Or in my case, one of the first encounters I had with death was not a somebody. It was a something. It was an animal who died. More specifically, a hamster that I had when I was a, a child, right? And, and I look back and I can laugh on it like it sounds ridiculous, but it raised some of these questions, right? We had this hamster. His name was Harry, the happy hamster. It was very alliterative, And we had Harry for probably, I don't know, six months. He didn't live a a really long time. But one day a a friend came over and I said, Hey, come on into my room. I want to show you Harry, my hamster. And so he came into the room and I said, here he is. And as I looked in the little cage, Harry was very still and was not moving. And I said, hold on, he must be sleeping. And as I, I picked him up, I realized very quickly he was not sleeping because hamster rigor mortis had begun to set in already. And I realized he's dead, and I, began, I just began to weep, just ugly, crying, terrible tears. And my friend had his mom come and take him home because the whole environment got very awkward <laughs> very quickly. But I grieved that animal, and it raised questions in my mind. What, where did he go? Where did the life force that once animated his body as he ran to and fro, where did that go? What happened to him? Now, as we get older, the the challenge that we have is that those questions that we encounter in the face of death, they only get more complex and more difficult, right? Because as we grow older, it's not only animals. We face the death of people that we love. And so we often may stand at a funeral and we say, wait a second, where is my friend where is my grandfather? Where is this person that I knew? That I love? And so I see their body. But where'd they go? Will I see him again. Throughout my life, and especially my life as a pastor, I have been at a lot of funerals. And here's something I've observed. I've been at at funerals where people died of natural causes or people died unexpectedly of tragic causes. I've been at funerals for the very, very young, for infants, and funerals for the very, very old, my great-grandparents. And here's something I've observed. Not a single funeral feels anything but tragic. There's not a single funeral I've been at where you look and you say, yeah, this feels like this was supposed to happen. This feels right. Now, every single one that I have gone to, there's a sense this isn't right. This is painful. And so we ask these questions because on some level we say, this doesn't seem like the way life was meant to be. What's going on? That's what we're going to explore this morning. What is going on? Where do we go when we die? What happens when we die? As I said, every faith system, every belief system has to deal with this. Even if you're an atheist, you're going to have to, at some point, ask this question: What happens when people die? Are they just gone? Or do they go somewhere spiritually? Will they rise from the dead? Every belief system, that's at the core of what they believe. And for Christians, it's particularly important, I think, because of what Paul tells us in First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no in other words, the apostle Paul is writing to a group of people in Thessalonica in the first century, and they're waiting and they're waiting for Jesus to come back because Jesus died and he rose again. And so they're waiting for him to come back. And as they're waiting, some of their friends start to die and they say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. What's going to happen to them if they die before Jesus comes back? And so Paul writes this letter and he says, look, I want you to know what's going on. So that when you grieve, when you're sad, he says, look, you're going to be sad. You're going to grieve, but I want you to grieve with hope. Because at the heart of the Christian faith is the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we can look at death with a sense of hope. I believe that no other belief system provides the hope that Christianity provides in the face of death. Because we believe that we worship a Savior who has conquered death. And that's going to be where we land this morning. But I do want to walk through a few principles the scripture lays out for us about, okay, what does happen biblically then when we die? Between now when you die and that point Jesus returns, what's going on? So let's look for a bit at the scripture and what it says. The first thing is this. When you die, your spirit separates from your body. When you die, your spirit separates from your body. Now, for some of you, you read this and you go, well, duh. Like, I recognize that. When I see death, I recognize the spirit and the body are separate, right? We are composed of body and spirit. Right now, now it's interesting because we take this for granted. But the reason I pointed out here is because that's not the way that we were designed to be. When God made the first people, Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden. He didn't intend for them to die. Death came later. Death is unnatural. I was remembering as I prepared this sermon, an incident from several years ago when our oldest daughter was in first or second grade. She came home one day with one of those projects that most kids eventually do, where they had to make a paper model of the human body. And inside the or on the paper model, they glued all the different systems of the body. You know, so you have the circulatory system and the digestive system and the uh, vasculatory system, or whatever it is. They had put all of these different internal organs and glued them on, so that when I came home from work, she greeted me at the door and she said, "Daddy, look, here's my body." And she paused for just a minute, and then she said, "But my brain is in my backpack." Because what had happened was the paper brain that she had glued onto the body had fallen off. I guess the glue had come undone. And so she had taken her brain and put it in her backpack. And I thought, man, what a strange and vivid way to describe that. And it got me thinking down this path, like, what if that was our reality? What if parts of us were separated? Our brain is over here. Another part of us is over here. And so you wake up in the morning and you say, I've got to go grab my brain, pop it in before I go to class. Some of you call that coffee, right? You recognize that's what you do. But you'd say, "Man, that's not that's not natural, right? That's not normal. You're meant to be an integrated whole, all the parts together. Biblically, body and spirit are meant to be together. When they're separated, that's not a natural thing. It was part of the curse. When you look at Genesis 3, what happened in Genesis 3, you remember? Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sinned against him. And so there was a curse placed on the world and a curse placed on humanity. So in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter in the entire Bible, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God says, Because you sinned against me, because you rejected my kingship in your life, you're going to go back. the dust. The earth itself will not produce the way that you would like it to produce. Your work is going to be toilsome and hard and bitter and then you'll go back to the ground. Your spirit will separate from your body. And ever since that day we have faced this enemy death. In fact, this is really the central theme of the book of Ecclesiastes written hundreds of years after Genesis 3. Solomon, Solomon, This great king of Israel grappled with this question. What good is life if my work is toilsome and and my life is short and then I go back to the ground? Why bother? And so he wrestled with the question. Of hope, Because death is not how it was supposed to be. And the reason I make this point is because when we get to the New Testament, Paul will again refer to death as an enemy. He says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And here's the critical point I want to make here. Because death is not natural, we have to be cautious about saying things like this. Death is just a normal part of life. Right, Because all too often, I think, in the face of death, in an attempt to be comforting, we may want to say something that makes it sound like death is really not all that bad. It's just a normal part of life. Everybody's going to face it. And in doing so, with good intentions, we steal away from somebody the right to grieve. Because we minimize one of the worst enemies that we face. Now, but the consistent testimony of the scriptures is death is a thief. Death is a violator. And Jesus has conquered death through his resurrection. That's the great hope. So that when Paul says we want to grieve as those with hope, that's what he means. It's an abnormal separation of spirit from body. Paul would also liken it to being naked in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at this. He says, For indeed in this house we groan. "'longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, "'inasmuch as we, having put it on, "'will not be found naked.'" For indeed, while we are in this tent, that is this body, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. He says dying in a sense, being separated body from spirit. Your spirit, it's like being naked. Now, those of you who have kids, I'm going to guess that while they were babies or toddlers, right? Infants or toddlers. At some point, you probably took a picture of them in the bathtub unclothed, right? Because that little baby bottom. Was just irresistible. And you keep that photo and you treasure it and you will show it at their wedding for fun, right? It'll be a great moment. But, but, there comes a time when that nakedness is no longer okay. Right? There comes a time, somewhere between maybe four, five, six, seven at the oldest, where if the child begins to walk about unclad, you say, no, that's inappropriate. And we long for you to be clothed, right? (laughs) Because that is right. It is unnatural to be unclad. That's how Paul describes death. It is the separation of spirit from body. And here's really what he's getting at. He says, from the moment you're born, you're born into a body that is going to die. Now, you're not always aware of that, especially when you're young, right? You you don't recognize that your body is already headed toward death and decay. It's already headed there, right? And and you're going to hit a point where you're kind of at your physical peak. And that may be in your 20s. That may be in your 30s. But at some point in there, it's going to start rolling downhill. I will never forget when I was in college. I was uh, working at a camp one summer and I had to go and speak or do something on stage in front of a bunch of the guests at the camp. And so I was in the public restroom at this camp and I was kind of working on my hair and I was kind of working on my clothes and adjusting stuff. And as I was doing this, I was probably 20 years old. There was an older man who walked in probably 40 years my senior, well into his 60s. And as he walked in, he took a look at me and he said, Matt, you look better right now than you will ever look again. (laughs) So relax. And it put it in perspective. And Paul says, you are born into a body that will die because of sin. And something in us groans against that. We say, but I don't want that. I want to be clothed. And the testimony that he gives, particularly in these letters to the church of Corinth, is that our hope is ultimately resurrection, to be reclothed with a body where the spirit and body will never separate again, where sin and death and sickness can never take us again. But in the meanwhile, we live in a world where death is a reality, and so our body separates from our spirit the scripture also tells us this, not only at death does our spirit separate from our body, but here's where our spirit goes. Our spirit goes either to heaven or to a place called Hades, or you might call it hell. I want to I want to look at one passage at length this morning. That's Luke chapter 16. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16, the third book in the New Testament. Start in verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, just listen along with me. This is a story that Jesus told, and it's a story about two guys. A rich man who is unnamed and a guy named Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus Jesus raised from the dead. Different Lazarus. Luke 16, verse 19. Jesus said this, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is a bit of a terrifying passage, but I want to make a couple of points about it. The first one is this. Jesus indicates in this passage that at the point of death, our eternal destiny is fixed. You go to one of two places. And in fact, Jesus seems to take pains as he tells the story to indicate you can't cross over from one place to another after you die. Much as Hebrews chapter 9 27 would say, it's appointed for man to die once. And right after that, after that comes judgment. There is no sense in the scripture of what you might call the doctrine of purgatory where there is sort of a third place where you can go to burn off your sin and ultimately merit a position in heaven. But instead, the scripture seems to indicate that at that point of death, you go to one of two places. Now, as you read the passage, I also want to point out, notice the rich man doesn't end up in hell because he's rich. He ends up in Hades Because he did not listen to God's revelation from Moses and the prophets. In other words, he didn't believe what God's word said. And even in hell, the rich man still believes that he ought to be catered to by this poor man. This poor guy needs to cross over and bring him water as if he's a servant. And Abraham says, you didn't listen to God's revelation about who I am. And you didn't believe in me. And he says, look, even if somebody goes from the dead, if they don't listen to the word of God, it's too late. So the scripture presents this evidence that you go either to heaven or you go to Hades at that moment of death. And ultimately what determines that destiny is how one responds to Jesus in this life. There really is no indication in scripture that there is some kind of a second chance After death. Now, that idea is very, very prominent in our culture, and it is very prominent in other belief systems. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the old 90s movie Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) So if you've seen it, then you know that the theme of it is this guy, this character, Bill Murray. He has to repeat the same day, right over and over and over again until he does it right, until he learns how to live and do it right. But that concept of being able to go back and sort of redo the decisions you made in life, we don't find that in scripture. There's one opportunity. In fact, the concept that we see in Groundhog Day, that is much more of a Hindu type of idea or Buddhist type of idea. That you go back and you are incarnated again and again and again and again until you get it right and escape that cycle. It's an Eastern religious concept. Concept, But the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once. Once. And after that comes judgment. And that judgment is based upon how we respond to the revelation of God. And particularly the revelation of the gospel itself. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Probably the very first passage you memorized as a child was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Look at verse 18. He says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who don't believe, that's the basis of their judgment. John would also say this in a letter in 1 John. He says, and the testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It doesn't get much more binary than that. Now, as I say that, as I say, look, at the point of death, your eternal destiny is fixed. You go either to be with Jesus forever or to be separated from him Forever. As I say that, I know that there are some in the room that a question has emerged in your mind. Well, that doesn't seem fair. What about people who have never heard about Jesus? What about people who can't understand the gospel? That doesn't seem fair. Now, if you feel that way, if that question has emerged in your mind, here's what I want you to do I want you to hold that question for a few weeks. Because at the very end of this series, that's going to be the the, the final sermon in this series. We're going to tackle those questions head on. Is God unfair? And so hold the question. But Here's what I want to say in in the meanwhile, between now and then, is this. Very simply, what we really want to do as we look at the scriptures, we want to worship God for who he is and not for who we want him to be. We want to worship God for who he is and not who we want him to be. Because worshiping God for who we want him to be, that's called idolatry. And so when the scripture presents this evidence and it says, look, this life is our opportunity to respond to what God has said and trust in Jesus. This is it. And we are called to take that seriously. So it raises the urgency of the Great Commission, of of sharing the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sin and he rose again so that we can have eternal life. Sharing that message with those who do not know it becomes a deeply urgent task. And we'll continue to talk about this throughout the next few weeks. So at death, our spirit separates from our body. Our spirit goes either to heaven or to Hades. And then thirdly, here's the the final point I want to make this morning from the scripture. For those who know Jesus, Christians who know Jesus, what they do in the meanwhile is they are waiting for Christ's return. They're waiting for Christ's return. Here's what I mean. And I've hinted at this a couple of times this morning. The heaven that we go to when we die is not actually our final destination. The heaven that we go to when we die is not our final destination. In other words, there is coming a day when Jesus will return. And what you see is that the dead will actually rise from their graves. So that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember, we looked at a part of this passage earlier this morning. He's going to say this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Here's what he's saying The day is coming for those who know Jesus when body and spirit will be reunited. And we will receive a brand new body. And we'll talk more about that actually next week when we talk about heaven. But a brand new body that functions as it's supposed to, that never gets sick, that never dies. And that's our hope. And what you see then at the very end of the book of Revelation actually is, what does heaven do? Heaven comes to earth. Heaven comes to earth so that our ultimate destination is not up there, but it's here on a renewed and restored earth. Occasionally when we talk about heaven, people will make comments about it like, look, I don't really want to float about upon a cloud for all of eternity, playing a harp. I I hate harps. I I don't want to do that. I have no musical ability. That's not what I want to do. That's not the biblical picture of our ultimate destination. In fact, it may be that you say, I love the mountains. I love... The ocean. I love the forest and the trees and animals and the creation God has made. I love being face to face with people who are embodied. And the scripture says our ultimate hope is this world, but perfect as God made it to be when He first made it. That's our hope. About 10 or 12 years ago, my wife Shannon and I had the opportunity to go visit some friends in China. So, very long flight if you've ever flown over to China. And uh, on the way, we had to make a couple of connections and we had some travel issues. And uh, long story short, they lost our bags on the way over. So for about four or five days, while we were in a particular city, we had no luggage. We had no bags. Now we had packed a couple of changes of clothes and a carry-on. So we just kind of washed them every day and swapped clothes. They finally got us our bags on the very last day. Like as we're packing up to leave, they come in with our bags, and so we, we grab our bags and we go to the airport. Well, well, the upside of all this was because of the trouble, the airline decided on the way home that they were going to upgrade us to business class. Now, I had never been on business class on an international flight. But let me tell you, it's like you're on a different planet <laughs> than the people in coach. As soon as we got up there, we noticed that the flight attendants, they were friendly and helpful. They were smiling at us. They were offering us things. They said, would you like red wine or white wine or a glass of water? Can I get you the filet mignon now? Or would you like to wait a little while? Let me take your coat. Here, sit down in this giant chair. There's a bathroom right there for the six of us up here. (laughs) And I remember you can't help but contrast it to your experience on the way, right? When you're down in coach and you're jammed in with six people in the middle seat. They're telling you to sit down and shut up. They come in with poles, right? They're cramming you in. We can't fit all of you in. Right? And here I am with all this space and it's beautiful, right? You even begin to think, I deserve this somehow. I must have done something to deserve elevation above the peasants lower on the plane in the coach section. Right? So we're flying All the way back across the ocean. And I'm beginning to enjoy this. I'm enjoying it to the point that it was the first flight I'd ever been on. Especially a long flight. Where I wasn't super eager for it to end. And we landed and it briefly crossed my mind. I wonder if we could ask the pilot just to take another spin. (laughs) For a little while. And I'll just hang out here for a while. Because this is amazing. But then I had another thought. This is amazing. But it's not my home. It's not really where I belong. I don't really belong in this airplane. As great as it is, it's not really my home. Now, when we see the scripture present the concept of heaven, here's what we see. Those that we know who have died and gone to heaven, man, they are in a great place. They're in the presence of God. They're worshiping God. But actually, home is back here. On the earth that God intended it to be. And that's the eternal hope. Imagine if you could be at your home in your own bed, but without the frustration and decay that often marks home ownership. Your stuff would never break, your house would never fall apart, there would never be unwelcome, unexpected financial surprises. You say, That's what I want. That's what the scripture promises when we talk about eternal life, is a renewed world in which everything is as it was supposed to be. So the spirit separates from the body, goes to heaven or Hades, and for those who know Jesus, then we await the return of Jesus Christ when heaven comes to earth. As we close, let me offer a couple of questions to ponder. The first one is this. Do you know that you will spend eternity with Jesus? Do you know that you will have eternal life? Whether you came in this morning for the first time, or maybe you have gone to church your entire life, you may never have really settled whether you believe in Jesus And the testimony of the scripture is the only way to have eternal life is to go through Jesus. Because as we mentioned earlier, all of us disobeyed God. That's what sin is. All of us said, God, I don't want your rulership over my life. Adam and Eve did it first and then the rest of us followed. And so apart from God's help, all of us are destined for hell. And yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, God's only son, he died in our place. He took on himself our death and our sin. And then he was laid in a tomb for three days. And then he rose again. And so that 1 Corinthians 15 says, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus went first. And if you believe in Jesus, one day you will rise again. Do you know that you will spend eternity with Jesus? Have you trusted that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and gives you eternal life? And then secondly, will you share the message of eternal life with those who need to hear it? A few years ago, I ran across a story, a great book um, called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. In fact, one of the best books on heaven that I have ever read. And he talks about uh, a story related to the concept of heaven. He talks about a woman named Ruthanna Metzger. Ruthanna Metzger was a professional singer. And it says several years ago, she was asked to sing at the wedding of a very wealthy man According to the invitation, the reception would be held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the Northwest's tallest skyscraper. She and her husband, Roy, were excited about attending. At the reception, waiters in tuxedos offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages. The bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut a satin ribbon draped across the bottom of the stairs. They announced the wedding feast was about to begin. Bride and groom ascended the stairs, followed by their guests. At the top of the stairs, a maitre d with a bound book greeted the guests outside the doors. May I have your name, please? I am Ruthanna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy. He searched the M's. I'm not finding it. Would you spell it, please? Ruthanna spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the maitre d looked up and said, I'm sorry, your name isn't here. There must be some mistake, Ruthanna replied. I'm the singer. I sang for this wedding. The gentleman answered, It doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. He motioned to a waiter and said, Show these people to the service elevator, please. That feels a little harsh, but okay. When the invitation arrived, she said later, I was busy. I never bothered to RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. And it says she began to weep because she also was a believer in Jesus. And it hit her right then. There will be people who think, because I've done some good things, because I've been a nice person, surely they'll let me in the door. And at the final judgment, the book of Revelation says there's going to be a book, and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is not in the book... Can't go in. And so, as I said, this raises the urgency for us. Do we believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life? And will we proclaim it? I would ask this week begin to think about those in your sphere of influence who do not know the good news of Jesus and simply ask. Am I the messenger that God would send to proclaim the message that there's eternal life and the hope of resurrection, that even those who die, if they know Jesus, they will live? Will I be that ambassador? Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful this morning. We're grateful for your word. We are humbled and sobered by your word. Help us understand it. I pray make us faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there are any here this morning who don't know you through Jesus, that they would come to believe in you. And for those who do, I pray we would share the good news of eternal life with all who need to hear. Father, we're grateful for this time. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the grace of Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.